I was just incredibly tired all the time. I mean, suddenly I couldn't do as much as I did the week before. And after like probably three or four months of feeling not so good, I started getting dizzy all the time. And then the pain started. So then I realized that something was wrong with me. And I went to the doctor at the gathering inn. And he told me to go straight to the ER the day I saw him. Which was like a godsend. Because when I got to the hospital, I found out that I had stage 3 rectal cancer. It's very scary when you live in a homeless shelter. Welcome back to The Plaster Life as we continue our look at whole person care, the county's innovative pilot program to help chronically homeless people get back on their feet and off the street. Today we'll be looking at how the program tackles medical services and challenges. It's a critical part of whole person care is finding our members who have not just mental health and substance abuse problems, but medical conditions and addressing those medical conditions so that they're not cycling in and out, not going um, to the emergency department. That's Dr. Rob Oldham, the county's health officer. I've been an emergency physician for over 10 years, um, and I, it is actually... Taking care of the vulnerable and the underserved is actually one of the reasons why I went into emergency medicine. In fact, it's kind of the calling of our, it's a culture of emergency medicine to take care of vulnerable populations. And that's Doug Brosnan, an ER doctor with Sutter Health. As an emergency physician, I'm focused on health, uh, you know, which, which is a small slice of the pie. But of course, health goes beyond medication, side effects, you know, the the, the pain that you've come in with today, it really does include, do you have a safe place to go home to? Do you have a place to sleep tonight and maybe for the next several nights? There's a lot of reasons why someone will cycle in and out. And it's not just because of homeless, but that is definitely one of the risk factors for cycling. And if you help just a couple of people, you can really, if you set people on a different path, it has a ripple effect. It helps their own lives. It helps their children's lives. It helps their families' lives, you know, their brothers and sisters. It, it, it's such a ripple effect. We're in an ecosystem, yeah. you know, and, and like none of us are in this world by ourselves, hopefully. And so, you know, if your sister were failing, it impacts you. And I think if we're able to find a way to hit the reset button and put people on a path where they can have a healthy life and a, a, you know, a surroundings and a social network that's more supportive um, rather, than, rather than focusing on why are they back in the ER? You know, why, why, are they, why do they come to the ER because they, and, you know, and trigger a, a $1,000 ER visit because they needed a sandwich? You know, well, there's reasons for it and it's you can point fingers and, and disparage or you can embrace them and support them and provide a different path. And I think that's what this program is all about. In the previous podcast episode, we met Skip, an elderly man receiving services through whole person care. Skip is quite familiar with the ER. 
Here's his case manager, Todd. He was one of our higher users of the ER in our entire program, I think, last year. Before our program started, I think he had like over 100 ER visits um, in like an eight-month period or something like that. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so obviously he's kind of a perfect candidate for our program. Now, 100 might be overstating it a little, but in the six months before Skip enrolled in the program, he visited the ER seven times for an estimated cost of $17,500. In the first six months since he enrolled, he visited the ER just four times, and in the six months after that, just once. He's healthier, and that's shaving tens of thousands of dollars off in ER visits. So how is whole person care accomplishing this? Today, we'll introduce you to another person facing homelessness. Hi, I'm Ellen. I... Tell me uh, where you're from. I'm from Roseville. Spent most of my life in Roseville. So you grew up kind of in Roseville? Mm-hmm. Okay. Went to grammar school here. Was Roseville super different for you growing up? It was very small then. Okay. Very small. It's grown a lot in the last 40-something years. So were you growing up in kind of like old Roseville? Yeah, in where the Denios is, that area. So that was kind of the last thing in the town. And then it was just a bunch of fields back then. That would have been like in the early 70s when I went to high high school, grammar school. When I was 18, I worked at Del Taco, of course, because everybody has to do fast food first, right? I remember that, yeah. (laughs) And then after that, I went to work in gas stations where I worked for 20 years straight. And that was like as a clerk or what? what? No, I was usually an assistant manager or higher the whole time. Awesome. So I have had responsible jobs and good jobs. I enjoy working with people. It seems to be like a need for me to interact with other people on a daily basis. It's like it's nice to be needed. It's like for some of us, it, like it's something that I miss, spending time with other people and getting to know other people. Ellen is the mother of two daughters, one 25 and the other 19. So did you raise them as a single mom? Or? I did. Okay. What was that like? Um, was that... It was you know. hard because with two kids alone, no matter how much money you make, it's never enough. We always had enough to get by. Maybe not a lot of perks, but the bills always got paid, and there was always food in the house. And the three of us together, it's like a laugh fest most of the time. <laughs> you put, like, three very strong women in the same room, and it's mostly we laugh. So in 2010, I my car broke down. And when you work a single mom with two kids, there's no money in the bank to buy a car. So I kind of suddenly had no car, so I had to quit my job and get something closer to home that I could walk to. And by 2010, nobody was hiring full-time anymore. Everything was part-time. And part-time does not pay the bills. 
especially when you got two kids. So slowly, very gradually, by 2015, the landlord evicted us. And now your daughters were still in the house at that point? Or? The youngest one was. Okay. The older one was living with her now husband, so her boyfriend. And, I mean, we didn't fight it. We didn't try to stay for however you can legally stay in a house after you've been evicted. Yeah. We left, and the older, my older daughter, Carrie, was just getting ready to move to Butte City with her boyfriend, and she took her sister with her. So that was like a weight lifted off of me that I raised a daughter that would do that. I mean, they, they're very close. So she took my younger daughter with her and the dog. So like for six months after that, I kind of I shared an apartment. I was still working. I part-time? Sh- still part-time. Yeah. I mean, let way less than 40 hours, like 25 on a good week, which doesn't pay bills even for a single person. So I had like a roommate situation for a while, and then she went to live with her boyfriend, so I had to move again, and then I had another roommate situation, and then one more after that. And then that's like when I moved into the homeless shelter in 2015. What did you expect going into the homeless shelter? I was scared. I expected lots of drug addicts, which isn't true. I mean, there are. I mean, most people believe that all homeless people are mental or drug addicts or alcoholics. And some of them are, but there's a lot of people like that were just like me who had either no work or, you know, had an eviction for whatever reason they had one and ended up there. There's a lot of people like that. Or medical conditions can put you there because you can't afford to pay medical bills and a house too so that part shocked me how many people were exactly in the same situation as me ellen was at the gathering inn in roseville a nomadic style shelter every day you go to a different church they have like 40 35 40 different church you go to so every morning you wake up at a church at five thirty in the morning which is very early. You get on the bus. You go back to the gathering inn. It opens at 8 o'clock in the morning. You have all day to work. They have computers. So you can work on computers to work on getting housing or getting back to work. And then check-in time is 4 o'clock. You line up, sign in, hope you get in because they're limited on how many people can fit. And at 6 o'clock at night, you go to the next church and have dinner at the church and sleep in a nice warm church that's safe and not on the streets. 
But things changed when Ellen received her stage 3 cancer diagnosis. I knew from, like, day one that I would probably have to, I would have to have radiation and chemo. So I knew for sure I was having chemo and radiation and then surgery, all while living at a homeless shelter. Did they give you, like, was there a risk that, uh, what was the, I mean, this is a morbid did question. Me, but did they give me the um, odds? Yeah. The odds are? Yeah. <laughs> that conversation, did they talk you through that? They, n- not at, when I first got diagnosed, because they didn't know exactly how severe it was at first. But, yeah, when I met with the surgeon, and then I had to have another scan, I think a PET scan, mm-hmm. which is the one that get it, they look inside to see how far it's spread. We did have a conversation about if it's gone this far into your body, the odds are, like, not too far, 80%. If it's this part, 40 to 60% that you'll live. (laughs) And if it's gone this far, you're down to, like, 20%. So that's like that. That was like, numbers like that are very scary. Very. Did you talk, were you talking with your daughters as this was going on about, or or were you trying to keep that from them, or, or what was your approach to I, I did keep it from them for like a little over a month, because I didn't know what to tell them. And I didn't want to just call them up and said, hey, mommy has cancer. So I wanted to like have answers when I talked to them. But like after a month of keeping that kind of secret from my kids, I realized it was a bad idea. So I did finally call them and tell them. And then I realized I should have just told them from day one because it's like having them know was definitely a weight off of me. And then treatment began, still while at the gathering in. So for seven weeks, Monday through Friday, I went to radiation every day. Monday through Friday, weekends off. And then I took the pills Monday through Friday, twice a day, for the 35 days. So that is how I spent my holidays. Got diagnosed on October 1st of 2016. I started chemo and radiation 30 days before Thanksgiving and ended three days after New Year's. So that was how I spent my holidays. That year was on chemo and radiation. And what were, yeah, the effects of that? What, and what was it like being in a shelter was you were experiencing some of those effects? It was, I guess the pills are not as harsh on you as they used to be, but definitely makes you nauseous. 
I definitely lost a lot of weight because I was down to like 111 pounds. So I lost 20 pounds on chemo and radiation. It's like, so neither one of them necessarily hurt. It was the side effects. Radiation, when you're all done, it does burn your skin wherever they're shooting the radiation. So it was, that part was hard. And being 53 and incontinent for a while is hard to live with. It's kind of like, it shouldn't be embarrassing, but it is because, you know, you're grown and... Was it the gathering in staff that was helping you through some of that? All of them. It, okay. Or some of the, your fellow residents or them, all of the above? Or? I had w- one friend there who worked with me in the laundry room. She's the only person who knows everything I went through. Like all the illness part. Because it, I mean, it was, was kind of rough. In March came surgery, and that was physically removing. The tumor? Yes. Okay. Yes. And that, then after the tumor was removed, that's when I found out that it was all isolated in one spot. So it didn't spread anywhere else. I got very lucky. After surgery, there was no way Ellen could go immediately back to the shelter. She'd been allowed to sleep on couches instead of the usual cots, but she was in no condition to be in a shelter environment let alone on the streets. I had heard from lots of different places that we were having huge gaps in our system for people um, who had medical problems. Actually, we had a strength in that um, the Gathering Inn had been running an interim care, uh, they called an interim interim care program for, uh, and they partnered with Kaiser and Sutter, two of our local hospital systems, uh, for people experiencing homelessness who had been recently discharged from the hospital, uh, who were sick enough to get admitted to the hospital and been discharged. And so that piece was already in place. So many times people are ready to be discharged from the hospital, but they don't have a place to heal. And as housed individuals, we sometimes take that for granted. You're in the hospital, you have a home to go to. When you're homeless, those resources don't exist. And sometimes we don't think about that. So that's why the interim care program is so important. Um, In Placer County, we work with the Gathering Inn. That was Kelly Brank with Sutter Community Health. And this is Ron Arneson with the Gathering Inn, who runs the interim care program. The Gathering Inn um, has been running an ICP program since 2009. Uh, It's completely funded through Sutter. We can take up to five guests here at the house. Um, It's meant to be a place for folks to just rest and to heal, uh, recovering from a recent hospital discharge. Guests here get case management and are provided uh, uh, meals, um, transportation, help with follow-up appointments, those types of things. So since 2009, we've had about roughly 30 people a year, kind of increased in the last couple of years to 48. And then ever since we've been doing that, Whole Person Care came along and asked us to contract with them and to run a second facility on B Avenue, which is an identical program that we run. 
um, up there, we can have eight patients. So now Ron runs the Gathering Inn's original interim care program, as well as the new county program dedicated exclusively to whole person care clients. The new program is run out of a repurposed building on the county's government center campus in Auburn. I went there straight from surgery, though. Like, I didn't even try to go. I was like, after surgery, because the first two months I spent in bed because I couldn't sit up for the first two months after surgery. So I spent two months in bed. And then it was extended to when I had to have the second round of chemo. And that's when I got infusion chemo, too. So instead of just the pills, I also got the um, infusion, I mean, the liquid chemo. What were the, were the effects of that one different, that kind of chemo different, though? Yes. Okay. Yeah, they were worse. Definitely worse. Because now I suddenly have an ostomy on my stomach because of where the tumor was. What's an ostomy? Is that a bag? Yes. Okay. They take part of your colon and they pull it to the front and make a cut so that you can have bowel movements Uh because they have to reconstruct your bowel because of the tumor. Okay. So I'll have that for the rest of my life. Okay. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Took some getting used to. Yeah. She had a um, colostomy bag and a stoma, I guess. So the not something that would work in a in a shelter situation. So neither one of the shelters would be able to accommodate that. So for obvious reasons, health reasons, you know, the spreading of stuff. So it was a good fit here. Um, it's a better environment to have a place where you can rest after that kind of chemo type treatment. And there's quite a few reasons actually that the hospital want to discharge folks here. So regular wounds at times can get to the point where they get extremely infected, like an osteomyelitis type thing. So to actually treat those things, the way it's best treated is through um, home health. So home health will come out a nurse will actually a wound care specialist will address the wound, measure it, make sure that it's going down. They'll send it with a wound vac oftentimes and other like uh, gauze and things to help uh, keep it clean. They'll come out three times a week and help those types of folks. Or oftentimes there's people sent that need some physical therapy. So a PT can come out and do that type of stuff in a home setting. Sometimes I just get like, when I was being tra- treated, I would just get overwhelmed with how crappy I felt and that I wasn't being myself. I mean, just because I didn't feel good. Because the normal me is very chatty, make jokes all the time, and, like, usually pretty happy. So not feeling well for so long was, like, depressing it's depressing to not be yourself because you feel horrible I mean I still was still tried to make the best of it and have a positive outlook most of the time but I had a lot of fall apart moments 
but nobody ever saw those. Oh. <laughs> I would just go to my room and cry for an hour, listen to sad music. <laughs> I had a playlist. You had a playlist? <laughs> I have, like, songs that made me sad. There were, like, a few about dying other people. And, like, when Glenn Campbell died, his last, like, he died from, I forgot, when you, Alzheimer's. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. So his last song was, like, incredibly sad to me because it was about forgetting stuff and leaving, but he wouldn't remember. Yeah. So it was stuff like that that I would listen to. I'm still here, but yet I'm gone I don't play guitar or sing my songs It never defined who I am The man that loved you till the end And then I would get over it and listen to the happy songs. It would have been almost impossible to be at the homeless shelter going through chemo, radiation, surgery, and more chemo just because of how weak you are the whole time. And obviously some people or sicker, I mean, would be sicker on chemo than I was. But there is nowhere to rest. You can't just go, I'm tired, I need a nap, and voila, they find somewhere for you to lay down. Because there is no place at the homeless shelter to take a nap a couple times a day. So without the ICP house... And the respite care house, I would not have gotten through it. So, thank goodness they let me stay there as long as they let me. Don't know if remission is the right word. Okay. But it's I'm cancer free. Cleared out. Okay. Yes. <laughs> We're just dealing with the aftermath of the chemo still. Which is so when, still not fun. When were you uh, declared cancer? How did they figure that out that you were? Uh, uh, like was that before you three went into weeks the... after I got off chemo, I had to go have a CT scan. So they scan you from the neck down and look for it, and there was nothing. How did that feel? Good, good. It's like, I know I'm going to be better soon. I hope. But we're still, like, in limbo on everything that's still going on with The me. effects, like the... The effects, effects yeah. yeah. The first time I had infusion, I had a bottle of cold water sitting next to me. Halfway through, my leg was hurting, and <laughs> I realized the ice water was next to my leg, and I'm like, okay, that side effect is real. Yeah. yeah. 
Wow. So Weird. even touching a tomato out of the fridge would make your hands go numb. How weird. It is weird. So it also causes neuropathy, which is when your hands and feet go numb. And you still experience that today, right? I do still have that. Do they, why it's gotten worse, so I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, do they say it should go away, or, or what's the... It should have, and it was down to almost nothing. Uh-huh. But I recently had an ear infection and a ruptured eardrum, and the medication, the antibiotic they gave me, one of the side effects is possibly neuropathy. Uh, so I think that is what up. has caused it. <laughs> Yeah. To get worse because it was down to almost nothing. It was just my very ends of my fingers and the ends of my toes. And now it's my whole hands and whole feet. So I'm having trouble walking. She transitioned um, from the gathering in ICP to the whole person care ICP. Um, When it first opened, she was one of the first residents there. Um, She had finished her cancer treatment, but she was still experiencing a lot of the side effects um, of the treatment that she's had. Um, So it would have been difficult for her to go back to the gathering in at that point. And so we really felt like she would benefit from being at the the ICP. the continue continuing having that ICP care um, uh, in her recovery process. This is Karen, Ellen's caseworker. What were your impressions of her when you met? Do you remember when you first mm-hmm. met? Yeah, absolutely. She was a hoot. Um, uh, what really stood out to me that um, in the middle of going through cancer treatment that she had such an amazing attitude, very upbeat, had a wonderful sense of humor. Um yeah, always kept me in stitches, you know, was always coming up with with little um, funny quips to share. And, um, yeah, she was just, despite her diagnosis, was full of life and was just a delight to spend time with. Initially, we, on, we were only approved for five beds of medical respite in an initial application. And recently, we've been able to expand that from five uh, to eight Turns out we probably need a lot more beds than that. There's certainly demand. Uh, what we've had to do is triage um, and figure out which of our 150 members at any one time could benefit the most from uh, from medical respite. And so that's really required us to uh, sit down as a team and then pull in you know other partners and make those decisions about uh, really who goes to medical respite and who is maybe on the on the waiting list. Deciding who takes priority when it comes to filling these limited beds is not an easy choice. One of Karen's clients maxed out his time in interim care after recuperating from a heart attack. He was doing better, and so he headed back to the shelter. But just a few weeks later, the email came. 12-26-2017. He was being seen at the Sutter Roseville Medical Center for unspecified convulsions, an altered mental status, and a right-sided focal motor tremor. The alert Karen received is new technology that's revolutionizing the way case managers work with clients who have medical issues. 
It's called PreManage, and it is a platform that it allows us as the whole person care team to get notifications whenever one of our members shows up in the emergency department or gets admitted to the hospital. Um, but we're also beginning to use it for other uh, types of care management systems so we can actually communicate across different sectors and working. Um, that's the next step is to go you know, have primary care have access to this, have homeless service uh, providers and mental health providers have access so that we all have and not that uh, we're reading each other's records, but we have some basic um, things, a common plan that we can all uh, share a, about a, a shared member and, and, and communicate with each other. But what's really been pivotal is um, we, we had one uh, pay-for-performance measure that required us to follow up within seven days whenever one of our members showed up in the emergency department. And I think uh, the goal was to do that 70% of the time. And I remember us saying, how are we going to be able to do this? But pre-managed really... Um, um, was uh, just a killer app that allowed us immediately to, we're hitting 95% of the time where we can find out immediately and often the next day that when our member gets hospitalized, we're able to follow up and find out you know, how we can support them. Uh, we never would be able to do that without this technology. The case managers having this data means they don't have to start from zero. That's Dr. Brosnan with Sutter again. The case managers he mentions are social workers that Sutter has embedded in the ER. Social workers that are in regular contact with whole person care staff so that everyone's on the same page around a client's care. That kind of communication between systems is one of the goals that whole person care set out to achieve, and it helps the program reach other goals as well. So whole person care uh, is a pilot program um, run through the Department of Healthcare Services. Uh, it's a matching grant that governmental organizations, primarily counties, uh, were given the opportunity to apply for. Um, Placer County decided to do that. A lot of places didn't. It was a pretty difficult grant process, and there needed to be a matching grant. So that's that's a lot for a county to come up with is how are we going to get all these matching dollars. And it also required a lot of collaboration. It wasn't like you could take your adult services program and say, hey, we're going to start a new program in adult services, right? It, it basically said you need to get health care together, you need to get mental health care, substance use, health care plans, hospitals, you know, you need to get all of these pieces together and say that they'll work on this project. And it's quite an undertaking. And I think a lot of places thought this is too much. This is too complicated. Uh, and I appreciate Placer County showed a lot of leadership on this, and they decided to go for it. And there, I think there was support at every level within the department, um, at the board of supervisor level. Uh, you know, there's a homelessness issue in Placer County, as there are in other places. And, you know, rather than ignore it or try a conventional approach that isn't working um, – I think they decided to be innovative and try some things, and I think they're finding success. One thing that Whole Person Care does is it's a pilot program that's trying out different things, and, and one thing they are doing is called pay for outcomes. So they're basically are saying, hey, if you get certain outcomes, we're going to kind of give you a reward. We're going to give you extra money if you can give us these results that we want. And I, I think it's it's a great thing. They're trying new things to see, like, will this work better? Will we get better results from trying trying some different things? 
So some of the outcomes we need to reach are getting to a client within seven days of an emergency room visit. So that's one of our metrics that we need to reach. And we were well above our the metric we needed to reach. We saw over 90% of our people within seven days. Another one is when someone enters the program, getting a comprehensive assessment and treatment plan done within 30 days. And that was another thing that we were well over the metric on that. I, I think we we're ni- around 95% for those. And amongst the homeless, it's common to have about a 50% all-cause readmission rate. So someone, if someone goes to the hospital and stays in, not just an emergency room visit, but someone who is admitted to the hospital and is released, it's about 50% that they'll be back within 30 days. And that's important. It's, it's a national measurement to like measure how well hospitals are doing. Uh, so one of our goals is to decrease 30-day all-cause readmissions. And I think ours were at about 32% this year, which is really – that's really good. <laughs> and uh, for sure, a big part of that is the medical respite program that we, you know, we have a place for them to stay. And so let's return to Ellen, who is staying at that very medical respite house, a.k.a. in-room care. While she stays there recuperating, the clock is ticking. She needs to find housing and fast. And health is only one of many barriers that people like Ellen face. In the next episode, we'll take a closer look at some of the other challenges that whole person care members experience and how staff is bringing together resources from around the community to help address them. I'm never gonna hold you like I did. I said-